And please turn your Bibles to John chapter 5. As we continue in the series, Honor the Son. We're working uh, from John 5 through to John 12. And today we're going to be in verses 30 through 47 of John chapter 5. Over the last couple of weeks in John 5, Jesus has been getting into some trouble with the Jewish leaders. Uh, His error, his errors, healing a man on the Sabbath and calling himself the Son of God. How dare he, right? Scandalous. Not not good. Shouldn't have been doing that. Uh, Verse 18 in John 5 says this, this was why... The Jews were seeking all the more to kill him, because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. And of course, that would be a terrible thing to say, unless you are the Son of God, then you probably better say it. Verse 19 in John 5 said this, So Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, and in that passage last week we saw Jesus saying this, I am God. Very clearly. The Father and the Son functioning in perfect unity. So Jesus said, I am God. I am sovereign. I am your judge. Jesus to the Jewish leaders, I am your judge. And he said, I am the Son of Man. The prophecy from Daniel 7. He is the Messiah. He said, I am the King of of kings. And therefore, he said to them, if you honor the Son, you've honored the Father, and you have life. He who has the Son has life. And if you dishonor the Son, you have dishonored the Father and remain dead. Believing in God isn't enough. We must honor the Son. And then this statement of transition, verse 30. Verse 30. Jesus said, I can do nothing on my own. Again, perfect unity with the Father. He says, as I hear, I judge. And my judgment is just. Christ's judgment will be perfect and appropriate. No mistakes. Never too harsh. Never too soft never confused or misguided or clouded in his judgment, never bought off, never distracted, just. Why? He says, because I seek not my own will, but the will of him who sent me, the Father. So in this statement, Jesus reaffirms his unity with the Father, uh, what the Father wills, Jesus wills. And he begins to describe the difference between his motivation, and that of these Jewish leaders. He said, I seek not my own will. In other words, as Jesus said in Matthew 20, the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve. Remember when Jesus was washing his disciples' feet, and Peter protested, Lord, do you wash my feet? Or the flip side of that coin, Lord, you should be lifted up by my service, by my servitude. And remember, Jesus said to him, if I don't wash you, Peter, if I don't wash you, then you will have no share with me. 
Peter and all of us need the service of Jesus Christ. We need washed. If Jesus didn't humble himself, if he didn't die on the sinner's cross, if he didn't take the wrath of God that we deserve for our sins on himself, then we could have no part in the glory God has promised us. Remember Romans 8 says, those whom he justified, he also glorified. Glorified. But here's a big question. This may be a big crux of the message today as we go through. Where does that glory come from? Where does that glory come from? Man? Does that glory come from man? Can glory come from man? Think about this. Would the highlight, would the highlight of Jesus' glory arrive because Peter washed his feet? Man, I wasn't very glorious, but when you washed my feet, all of a sudden, I ticked up a few notches. Is that how that worked? No, of course not, right? There's no glory to be gained from sinful man. Peter, Peter thought at that moment that his glory would be worth something. But what is the praise of man other than chasing after and grabbing at the wind? Jesus wasn't going to become important because somebody washed his feet. That's fleeting. Uh, When we sing glorify the Lord, or when we pray may we glorify the Lord, we aren't making him more glorious. Does that make sense? What we are doing is acknowledging his glory. When we rightly acknowledge his glory, we're just simply seeing what is true and praising him for it. Uh, He won't get shinier the more we sing. And we, he won't grow, he won't grow frail, dark, and pale if we don't sing. Does that make sense? If we sing an extra song on Sunday morning, God's not going to get bigger than he already is. If we cut a song out of our worship service, he's not going to get smaller than he already is. He is who he is eternally. And he's self-sustaining. I am that I am. So we're just worshiping him to acknowledge his glory. And therefore, in that sense, who does worship benefit? Isn't God good? If God's batteries aren't getting charged by our worship, then whose are? Us. What? Worship benefits us. God says, worship me. It's good for you. (laughs) Isn't that awesome? Praise God, he's so good. The glory that Jesus received is the glory only God possesses and can give. And it's his own. And the glory you and I will receive, Romans 8, the glory you and I will receive from him will be that same glory. The glory of the only true God. We will be wrapped up in his glory. We're not going to bring extra shine to heaven We're going to get to participate in it. Amen? All right. And so, as we continue in this passage today, uh, two potentially painful truths, okay? Having said what we've said, there's two potentially painful truths that we're going to see in this passage. You're going to be front and center. But painful in the, it's going to hurt worse before it gets better 
kind of way, and it will get better. I kind of imagine a guy sitting in an old jail, an old jail cell in chains. So he's got his chains on him, and all of a sudden this other, this other guy's in there, and he picks up this big rock, and he starts charging at him. And if you were there, and you were in those chains, and you saw a, a big, strong guy with a big rock charging at you, what would you do? Like, and as you're sitting there in those chains and that big, that big dude's running towards you, charging towards you, and you feel the wind of that, his motion and that movement of that big rock coming, and you hear the clang, and you feel the impact of the force, but you don't really feel it, and, and you open your eyes, and you realize he's broken your chains, and you're free. Hopefully it's going to be like that. <laughs> okay? And, and praise God for, for that. So here's potential painful truth number one. We think too importantly, I don't want to say too highly, but we think too importantly or too often of ourselves. So much so that our own testimony, our own opinion of ourselves is rendered invalid. You know, no, nobody on the singing the talent shows on TV, those reality shows, the ones with the judges, okay? Uh, nobody gets to go to the next round because they themselves feel really good about their performance. Boy, I was really pleased. You were good. Next round. That's not how those shows work, is it? It's not like that, okay? Uh, and when a person gets voted off, when a person gets voted off those shows, uh, they might get to their post-performance interview so that we can like see them all distraught or whatever. There's the craziness of TV for you. And they say, you know, it, it doesn't matter what those judges say. It doesn't matter. They don't know what they're talking about. I know I'm great. And then the interviewer looks at the TV and, eh, right? Why do they do that? And you might say, and I say this tongue-in-cheek and just kind of saying this to help us along in our thought process here. The show isn't called America's Got Good Feelings and a High Personal Regard for Ourselves. It's called America's Got Talent, right? Two different things, all right? Uh, If the person with the highest view of themselves, regardless of their talent level, if they were to be given a win in that competition, then the losers are, I guess, the audience, right? People... Go and pay to see talent. So generally, the talent level in those shows increases through the season, doesn't it? Because those judges, they, they identify actual raw talent. They're verified by third party, the judges. And then constructive, watch out, criticism. Constructive criticism is given and necessarily received Right? The contestants that don't accept criticism don't go very far in the competitions. So it's necessarily received. And then as the opponents, other opponents are beaten, as judges and coaches are impressed, then appropriate confidence rises in the individual. Confidence. Remember, truth is that which corresponds with reality. And so, I need to think of my view of myself. I need to think of my view of myself kind of like a carnival mirror. Instead of the making the mirror making me look like I actually do, 
it tends to make me look better or sometimes maybe worse. I think usually better. That certainly is the case in this passage today with with those who are accusing Christ. But either way, it's about me. It's about me. And and here is a truth. Uh, High self-esteem and low self-esteem have something in common. They're both focused on esteeming myself. And no matter how hard we might try, that esteem, the esteem of ourselves, whether it be high or low, uh, no matter how, how hard we try, it's intrinsically connected to how we think we compare to other people and how we think they probably think they compare to us. That's a recipe for disaster no matter how you slice it, high or low. Or, or maybe instead of a, a carnival mirror, it's like like a filter on a social media app uh, made to enhance your appearance, except you don't even realize or maybe admit that it's being used. And so you think it's a great picture. And then when those comments, the comments on there, the likes, the dislikes, when those come in, that serves as a kind of filter too, if you will. I'm filtering what I'm giving to people and I'm thinking, boy, aren't I a good-looking person? Or boy, isn't my mess hot around me? Everybody's going to think I'm amazing that I'm handling this mess. But then those comments come back and we get the opinions of others, right? And if a young lady puts a beautiful picture of her smiling face on Snapchat or Instagram and some young man or a mean girl makes a comment about how ugly she is, how ugly she looks, watch out. Which brings up our second problem. So number one, we think too importantly of ourselves too often. Number two, our desire for the praise of man, our desire for honor and glory, for attention, for acceptance, for approval from other people, It blinds us. Our desire for the praise of man blinds us. For the person who has not yet surrendered to the Lord, the person who has not put their faith in Christ, this blindness has never relented. Think about that. And if God doesn't graciously intervene from what Scripture says, it will probably be the reason everyone ultimately rejects Christ. Because I've made myself most important. I will be like the Most High God. That's what Satan wants. That's what Adam and Eve wanted. It's what we want. I want glory for myself, and I want it from within myself. Remember, when we sing, we don't make God more glorious. But sometimes we think that we make ourselves more glorious from some kind of glory that we have within ourselves. That's not there. And as we'll see today, that man-made fake glory can be entirely, entirely religiously motivated and under the name even of Christendom. It's called salvation by works. might call it that. I am good enough on my own to get to heaven. For those of us here who are in Christ, believers who have been saved by grace alone, through faith alone in the finished work of Christ 
alone. This pull, this desire for the praise of man will be a source, if not the source, of so much double-mindedness in our lives. A battle in our hearts for worship, and therefore a battle for obedience, a battle for usefulness in the kingdom. So this message today is important. Not that other ones aren't. But this one may cut to the heart in a special way. And I pray that God would graciously work in our hearts today for his glory and for our good. Now, starting in verse 31 of John 5, Jesus begins to answer the assumed response after he just said all the things that he said of, prove it. Prove that you are who you say you are, the Messiah, the Son of God. And and generally, whenever Christ made mention of who he was, of who he is, people wanted some evidence. And on this occasion, Jesus beats them to it and begins to share about certain witnesses toward his claim. And these are the witnesses most identified in this passage. Number one, John the Baptist. Number two are going to be his works, his miracles. Okay, like for instance, healing a man who was lame for 38 years, which is what he just did at the Pool of Bethesda, which is why this conversation started in the first place. Number three, scriptures that speak to him, Old Testament scriptures. And then four, Moses. Notice the order of those as we go through this passage. John the Baptist works, which Jesus says he's doing in step with the Father. Scriptures, the word of God from the Father. And then Moses. Man, God, God, man. In in Hebrew literature, uh, that is used to emphasize the middle point. And Jesus is going to say, man, eh, God. Man, it makes sense? So the emphasis, the positive is God's testimony, God's witness, okay? And before Jesus goes into these witnesses, uh, he even gives the Jews their customary disqualification of himself. So let's read verse 31. He says, If I alone bear witness about myself, my testimony is not true. Now why would Jesus say this? And this might be a little shocking to us in a culture today when we are told that my opinion is the only opinion that matters. But in the Jewish Torah, the legal code required two or three witnesses to verify claims, and Jesus goes along with this in this setting. And if the only witness who affirmed a claim was that individual who brought the claim themselves, it was insufficient to render a decision. Why? Well, because people can lie. And because people, as we've said, tend to see themselves inaccurately. Uh, Historians have found evidence for some 64 men, and it's probably more than that, who claimed to be the Messiah in the history of Israel. Only one of them was right. And so on that note, we could certainly understand why these Jews might ask, and why do you think that you are the Messiah? And if a person said, well, because I think I am. I can feel it. Probably wouldn't make the cut, right? But built into this recalling of the legal requirements for witnesses is this reminder. Jesus does this with this statement. People can't really be trusted to have a completely accurate view of themselves. He's giving them that. Jesus had a completely accurate view of himself. Other people don't. People who aren't God don't. And Jesus front loads this reminder for a bunch of people who are about to be told their view of themselves is inaccurate. So Jesus begins to bring his witness in verse 32. 
He says, there is another who bears witness about me, and I know that the testimony that he bears about me is true. This another is either John the Baptist or it's the father, and the way it's written could go either way, grammatically, but I I lean towards it being the father, that the father is the another because of that order, man, God, God, man. He's saying the another that's good, that's going to be God the father, okay? Uh, Verse 33. You sent to John, this is John the Baptist, and he has borne witness to the truth. Remember that John the Baptist publicly declared, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And, and he testified also that he'd heard the Father say, This is my beloved Son. And Jesus continues in 34, Not that the testimony that I receive is from man, but I say these things so that you may be saved. And this seems confusing at first, but Jesus here just struck John's testimony from his defense. He struck it from his defense. And he says, if that helps you that John the Baptist said so, then, then great. But I don't need that. I don't need it. He, verse 35, John the Baptist, was a burning and shining lamp. And this description connects him to the prophet Elijah and the fulfillment of prophecy that John the Baptist himself was. And he says, and you were willing to rejoice for a while in his light. The Jewish leaders willing to rejoice for a while in his light. It was cool. It was cool for a little while for for everybody to like John the Baptist. All the cool people, everybody who was somebody, wanted to listen to John the Baptist to see him and be seen with him. That is, until he called the Pharisees a brood of vipers and told them to repent, and until he called out King Herod for taking his brother's wife So he was all the rage until he wasn't anymore. That doesn't happen in our culture today, does it? And with that, for the record, the Jewish leaders did not listen to John. They rejected his testimony. Verse 36. But the testimony that I have, Jesus says, is greater than that of John. And remember, Jesus told the disciples no one was greater than John the Baptist, so this greater testimony is probably not going to be coming from a person. He said, for the works, the works that the Father has given me to accomplish, the very works that I am doing, bear witness about me that the Father has sent me. So witness number two, the works, his miracles. Uh, A few reminders so far. So far in our reading of the Gospel of John, Jesus has known the heart of Nathanael before they ever met. He turned water into wine at the wedding in Cana. Uh, He had known the heart of the the, uh, in history, the heart and the history of the Samaritan woman. He knew what she wanted and he knew where she'd been. He healed the official's son from a distance. He healed a man who hadn't walked in 38 years. And, remember, When Jesus cleansed the temple, when the Pharisees demanded a sign to prove Jesus' authority to do such a thing, to mess with their business, Jesus promised them that when they destroyed his temple, when he died on the cross, that he, Jesus, would rise from the dead on the third day. He made that promise. But these works were being rejected. The healing of the man at the pool of Bethesda was just rejected right before this part of the conversation started. And as Abraham said to the rich man in Luke 16, neither will they be convinced if someone should rise from the dead. 
the testimony of these works, these miracles of Jesus, were rejected. Not good enough, according to these men. And then now in verse 37, Jesus brings the next witness to the stand. He says, And the Father who sent me has himself borne witness about me. His voice you have never heard. His form you have never seen. And realize at this point the Jews would be agreeing with Jesus. Yeah, nobody's ever seen the true form of God. Uh, We have not heard his voice personally. Verse 38. And, Jesus says, you do not have his word abiding in you. For you do not believe the one whom he has sent. Earlier in this conversation, in this chapter, Jesus had told these men, if you reject Jesus' claims, you've rejected God. If you do not honor the Son, you have dishonored the Father. If you do not believe, if you do not put your faith in Christ, you are not believing God. And he reminds them of this. And Jesus finishes this thought with this final truth in verse 39. You search the scriptures. You search the scriptures because you think. Remember, we do what we do because we want what we want because we think how we think. Because you think that in them, meaning in keeping the law, you have eternal life. And it is they, the scriptures, that bear witness about me. So witness three, the scriptures, the scriptures. In these verses, Jesus begins to hold up a mirror to these Jewish leaders that accurately depicts what they are doing, where they're wrong. These people are searching the scriptures voraciously. They would have looked at our BBS and our individual times of study and maybe even our times of worship together and thought, oh, isn't that cute? You should see what I'm doing. They studied the word, but... They came to their study of the word with these thoughts. I am special. I am superior. I am super intelligent and competent. I am super righteous. And Jesus is telling them, you are self-righteous. You are deceived. And you will never see the scriptures clearly through those lenses. So, the scripture says this. Here's all the things that the scripture says. Let's, let's see if Jesus is right here. I think he's going to be right. And this is all from Old Testament uh, scripture, which they had in their possession at the time of this conversation. Isaiah 64. We've all become like one who is unclean, and all our righteous deeds are like a polluted garment, filthy rags. We all fade like a leaf, and our our iniquities, like the wind, takes us away. That's us, right? The Lord looks down from heaven on the children of man to see if there are any who understand, who seek after God. They've all turned aside. Together they've become corrupt. There is none who does good, not even one. That's Psalm 14. You think, that sounds like Romans. Yep, because it was Psalm 14. That's us. So that's a strike against, right, in the pursuit of righteousness. So, so there goes my hope for obtaining my own. But then, what do, what do the Old Testament scriptures say about the Christ? Was Jesus right to refer to the scriptures as a witness? And it is in these scriptures that we find the promise to Eve that the seed of the woman would crush the head of the serpent, the promise to Abraham that his seed would be a blessing to the nations of the earth, the type of Joseph in telling his brothers what you meant for evil, God meant for good, to save many people. 
uh, the promise to Israel before their departure from Egypt. When I see the blood, I will pass over you. The promise to David that one of, from his line, kingly line, would sit on the throne forever. The prophecy at the end of Daniel 9, where the anointed one would come at the appointed time and then be cut off before he would ever rule and reign. The virgin birth promised in Isaiah 7. Christ's birth in Bethlehem was prophesied in Micah 5. Herod's massacre of the boys in Bethlehem to try to kill the king was prophesied in Jeremiah 31. Hosea 11 points to Jesus' return to Israel after the family's escape to Egypt. We see his healing ministry previewed in Isaiah 31. Five. His triumphal entry on Palm Sunday is documented in Zechariah 9. His crucifixion is mentioned in a number of the Psalms, such as Psalm 22 and 34. And the crucifixion is also mentioned in passages like Zechariah 12 and Isaiah 53. Isaiah 53, Psalm 22, Psalm 20, or Psalm 16 also speak of his glorious resurrection. And church, this was a sampling There is no doubt, not a doubt, Jesus is all over the Old Testament, especially when we consider the fact that Jesus and the Father are one and in perfect unity, as we were reminded last week from John 5, 19. Jesus is everywhere in the Old Testament. And as Jesus said to the disciples on the road to Emmaus in Luke 24... Everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and all the Psalms must be fulfilled. The scriptures absolutely testify. They flawlessly witness to the truth of who Jesus is. But just like the witness of John the Baptist, just like the witness of Jesus' miracles, these scriptures were and are rejected. Jesus continues, John 5.40. He said, yet, though the scriptures bear witness of me, yet you refuse to come to me that you may have life. The evidence is all there. Yet you refuse. Realize, refusing is different than being ignorant. It's not that these Jewish leaders didn't know or that they didn't have the knowledge they needed to be able to perceive They didn't want it. They refused it. This could have been translated as, you do not want to come to me. That would have been a good Greek to English translation. You do not want to come to me. Why? And now Jesus begins to answer this question, verse 41. Jesus says, I do not receive glory or honor from people, but I know that you do not have the love of God within you. I have come in my Father's name, in perfect harmony, perfect unity, according to his will. Think, uh, I've come to serve and not to be served. And he says, and you do not receive me. Now, if another, meaning if another self-professed Messiah, comes in his own name, you will receive him. And they did. There were other men who came in their own name for their own glory, who they received and died, and they went on. So Jesus wasn't crazy to say that by any means. Verse 44, this is the big statement here. How can you believe when you receive glory from one another 
and do not seek the glory that comes from the only God. There's a question mark there, right? Not really a question. (laughs) What's the answer to that question? You can't. How can you believe if this is true of you? You can't. This is a question that's not a question. Jesus has said, verse 38, you've never heard or seen from God. 39 and 40, you don't want to come to me. 41 and 42, you don't have the love of God in you, which means you don't want to love God. You'd rather receive affection from people. Verse 43, you don't receive me or believe in me to be your Messiah. You want another kind of Messiah. What kind? Well, given what we've seen so far, the kind that looks more like you. I want one that looks just like me. Someone who looks like and talks like and clamors for the praise and approval of man like me. And if you want your Messiah to be just like you, then who do you want your Messiah to be? You! This is what he's saying to them. And who do you really want everyone else to want their Savior to be? You! You! Jesus is saying you don't really love God. You don't really want glory from Him. Because you don't want glory that comes from somewhere outside of yourself. And that glory doesn't exist. Worship and honor rightly belong to God and God alone. So this is, what would we call it? Idolatry. You know why the concept of self-esteem and its definition, its true meaning? Why the concept of self-esteem is a trap, as well-intended as it may be? It's because I don't just want confidence. That's not really what I'm after. I want to be worshipped. That's what I want. At this point of the conversation... Jesus could have said, checkmate. However, what do people do? What do they tend to do when when they've lost the argument, as civil as it may have been, but refuse to concede? Well, they say things like, how dare you? Who do you think you are? Which is what they've already said to Jesus, right? They said that earlier in chapter 5, and that's code for, you're not the judge of me. And if no one else is able to speak into your life like that, in a way that may help you grow or reveal blind spots that you have, even saving your life, if nobody else can do that, then who can? And if it's only you, which is what his statement implies, then idolatry. Or, instead of saying, who do you think you are, they might start calling you names degrading you, disqualifying you from being able to have any kind of say or authority or knowledge of the truth. You're an idiot. Why would I listen to you? Which is exactly what these leaders would do later when they declared that Jesus was casting out demons by the power of Satan. But, as has already happened once today, Jesus beats them again to the punch. Verse 45. Do not think that I will accuse you to the Father. There is one who accuses you, Moses. Think about that for a second from where they're coming from. Jesus just said, Moses accuses you, on whom you've set your hope. For if you believed Moses, you would believe me, for he wrote of me. But if you do not believe his writings, 
how will you believe my words? And in saying this, Jesus went right back to the heart of the issue, which was blinding these men from the first place. They loved Moses. Everybody loved Moses. Or at least their version of Moses. Well, in what way? Who were they trying to emulate? Moses. Uh, When they wrote new bonus laws to keep people from breaking the real ones, who do they think they were styling themselves after? Well, probably Moses. But in reality, they were not styling themselves after Moses. They were styling Moses after themselves. And so again, their love of the praise of men resulted in a desire to emulate the man that everybody loved. But their blindness, their blindness which was caused by their idolatry, the desire for the praise and glory from man, made Moses look a whole lot more like them. Made their attempts at righteousness look different than the filthy rags that they were. Made their standing with God different than the no one is righteous declaration from the word of God. Which all came together to make them think they had arrived which ultimately made their Messiah, Jesus, unnecessary. Unless, of course, his job was just to come free them from the Roman Empire and tell everyone how amazing they were. That would have been cool. Think about this. If I have no sin, if I'm able to be righteous, there is no need for the cross. There's no need for salvation. And so they might say, and how many people in the world might say today even, Jesus, unless you came to facilitate and reinforce my high view of myself and to take away these inconveniences from my life, thanks but no thanks. Unless you've come to honor me, I reject you. That's the transaction. And this is the wisdom of the world. And it's foolishness with God. Remember the Samaritan woman? From John 4, she thought she would get her glory and have all of her needs met from a man. And when that didn't work the first time, she got another one, and another, and then another, until she was on her sixth try. These men were broken cisterns. They couldn't hold water. She thought she kept trying to pour water in there and quench her thirst, And all of those men, they were just men like every other man. It didn't quench her thirst. Broken cisterns. They couldn't give her salvation. They could not give her glory. They could not give her healing. They could not give her rest. Jesus could. And he offered her living water. And she drank it. And she never thirsted again. And just with that, husbands and wives, you want to be the best husband you can be? Get your living water from Jesus, not your wife. And you'll be a better husband for it. Wives, get your living water from Jesus, not your husband. And you'll be a better wife for it. And you'll be able to love each other better. So this is the Samaritan woman. The Jewish religious leaders, they thought they'd get their glory from being super righteous and being respected and honored by men. They were going to be just like Moses, or so they thought. 
These righteous deeds were filthy rags and, and the praise of man is fleeting. They could not give them salvation. They could not give them glory. They could not give them healing. And they would never give them rest. Jesus could. And he offered them. We saw this in, with the Pharisee Nicodemus in John 3. New life. To be born again. From above, not from within. That was the problem. And based on the Son of Man being lifted up on the cross, taking the punishment that they deserved, that was a problem for their spiritual healing. And most refused. They liked their way better. Jesus' disciple Peter, we talked about him earlier, and perhaps all of the disciples at one point or another, they wanted to be the Messiah's right-hand man. There were times they were not much different than the Pharisees. We're with Jesus. Give me a badge. I'm with Jesus. Respect me. He wanted glory because he was part of the miracles. I I saw more miracles than you did. I got to catch more fish than you did. He figured out who Jesus was first. He knew he would never deny Jesus because of the fear of man. I won't ever deny you. I'll never deny you. And he would be the one to wash Jesus' feet. And when he washed Jesus' feet, that would elevate Jesus' status and brighten up his glory in front of all the others. Do you see the selfishness in that? But following Jesus around for three years, being at the epicenter of history, being called the disciple, didn't qualify Peter for greatness. Just ask Judas. The three years with Jesus didn't give him salvation. It did not give them glory. It did not give them healing. And it did not give them rest. Only Jesus himself could. And he told Peter, If I don't wash you, you will have no share with me. And that washing of their feet that day and that conversation uh, that went with it pointed them to the cross. So if you're here today and you've never repented of your sin, you've never surrendered to Christ as your Lord and never put your faith and trust in the finished work of Jesus Christ on the cross alone for your salvation, if your sin has never been washed away, call on him today. If you believe, if you call on the name of the Lord, you will be saved. The gospel of John was written, John 20, that you would believe and that believing you would have eternal life. Believe. Believe. Put all of your trust in him alone. We have nothing to bring to the table. It's all of Christ, and it's all of grace. You can pray even this morning, right now in your head, or while I'm praying with somebody sitting close to you as soon as we're done. Please take your trust away from the broken cisterns of this world, from the praise of man, and put all of your hope in Jesus. And Christians, be encouraged in the gospel today. You're saved because Jesus saved you. Amen. Uh, May the truth of the gospel keep us humble so that like Christ, we will remember that our glory does not come from the praise of man. It does not come from within ourselves. So that like Christ, we will be free from the trap of pleasing people so that like Christ, we'll be able to joyfully have the mindset to serve and not to be served. 
And then may that service, by God's grace, bear fruit as others then hear the truth of the gospel as well. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for your goodness. Lord, you alone are glorious. You alone are holy. You alone are worthy. Lord, forgive us for thinking too highly of ourselves or too often of ourselves, for making things all about ourselves. God, thank you for snatching us up out of the fires, giving us salvation in Christ, forgiving our sin and making us your children, giving us eternal life. God, may we live for your glory, for yours. May we look forward to your glory. God, we praise you and thank you for the ways that that would change us and make us more like Christ. And Father, we thank you that you've promised to do that, to finish that work in us against anything that we would do on our own. And Lord, we thank you that that all resounds to your praise and your glory. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen.